Well, hello and welcome to the Ethan Callison Sermons Podcast. I know this is back-to-back weeks of my teaching here as we're in this series, The Unfinished Church. And today we're going to be looking at the unfinished flock. I'm looking at a couple of scriptures. I'm going to get more into that as we get there. But I'm really excited about this series. I think God's doing some incredible things here at North Campus through this series. And I hope that uh, it makes a difference in your life. And uh, we would love for you as you listen, if um, there's a... Uh, impact in your life, please leave us a rating and review on the podcast. It helps us see if it's beneficial as well as help us get seen uh, in the podcasting world. Uh, and also make sure that you hit subscribe so that you automatically receive uh, my messages in your podcasting inbox every single time that I teach. Uh, without further ado, here I am with the unfinished flock out of multiple passages of scripture, but mainly First Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. I hope you enjoy. Well, good morning. And uh, like I said last week, the reason why um, we are in this series, The Unfinished Church, was because, or is because, um, a little over, a little under a year ago, we had the opportunity as a pastoral team to say, hey, we want each campus to speak and teach through a campus-specific sermon series. And I felt led that the Spirit said, hey, as we're coming out of this Daring Faith Capital Campaign and series, where we're talking a lot about the, the buildings of North Campus and the building of Southwest Campus and, and all this, we need to make sure that we're rooted and grounded in the scriptures of what the church is. What we see in the scriptures, what we see is the teaching so that we don't lose sight and we don't lose the vision that God has for his bride, his church. And so we're in this series, The Unfinished Church, um, and we're in this specific message today um, looking at the unfinished flock. We're looking at these analogies that's given through us in the New Testament as to this is the church and this analogy. And today we're going to be looking at this, the flock, this shepherd and his sheep and and the understanding of that. And so that's why we're in this series. Now, uh, many of you know that I played football for quite a while, and when I was in uh, Little League and Pee Wee, um, the development of the game is pretty pretty fun to watch and to, to see, um, to grasp and to understand. And so when I was in Little League, specifically like in Pee Wee, our coaches would give us uh, these printed off sheets that had our plays on it. And on this, it would say, you know, here's what this person's responsibility to, to do is. And that's what you, you memorize the play as you memorize which person, like for me as an offensive lineman, who am I blocking? So majority of my Little League career, I played center. And so it would say, the center is blocking this defensive tackle, or the center is blocking this nose guard, or the center is helping the guard block this defensive tackle, or the center is helping go up and blocking the linebacker. And so in this, you're studying and memorizing these plays. And my dad, I can remember him telling many of stories how uh, I understood that I was to block this person. And I've always been much bigger than anyone else. And he would tell these stories about how I would literally chase these guys down and they would like run away from me. And, but it was like, no, my responsibility is to block this guy. And if he runs to the sideline, I'm running with him to block, block him. And so that was my understanding of the concept of what football is. And then as I grew up and got under, I began to understand a little bit bigger. So then when you move into to middle school and then to high school, JV and varsity, I moved from center to, to left tackle. And, and in that, we trained into, or taught not understanding, hey, you're blocking person X, but the scheme of the play. What are we trying to do? Getting a little bit bigger picture of, of what football is. And so in that, okay, we're running an inside zone. What is the desire of this inside zone? It's to create a hole in this area. We're running an outside zone. Here's what we're trying to do. We're patting, you know, all these are starting to understand the concepts, the bigger picture. Well, then when I got to college, now it's not just Ethan has to understand what the offensive linemen are doing, but what, what are we as an offensive unit? What are we trying to do? And so I remember when I got to to my very first fall camp and our offensive line coach, Coach Dennis Wagner, gave us our playbook and like two thirds of the playbook wasn't plays, but was terminology, schemes, 
an understanding of the game of football. And so in this, we had to memorize these terms. We had to make sure that the vocabulary we were using were similar, were the exact same across the board. And so I can remember we have to study this playbook, study, 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 study the playbook. And then he would give us these tests. And they were some of the hardest tests that I had to take as a college student because it was all these details of the ins and outs of football. And he was like, if you don't understand what we're doing, not just offensive line, but you have to understand what the running back's doing, you have to understand what the tight end's doing, you have to understand what the receiver's doing, so that we as an offensive unit are all on the same page when we're moving down the, the ball down the field. Because if you understand what, like me in, in college, if I understood what I was doing as a left tackle, and I also understood what the right tight end across the line of scrimmage was doing. It helped understand what we were trying to do in this and playing in this. And so in this, when you watch the development of the understanding of football, you have to see it's not just Ethan's worrying about what Ethan's doing, but what are we as an offensive unit? What are we doing here in this play? And I open up with this because I believe that when we begin to understand and develop a correct view of what is our team, taking that analogy to the church, what are we trying to do we have a more fulfilled and flourishing life when we understand what the church is to do. And so as we look at the flock here today, when we understand, I believe that when we understand the role and the responsibilities of the shepherd and the sheep in this illustration of the flock, we will flourish in life as individuals and corporately better and have a more fulfilling life. So in this, I'm going to give a little caveat to this. Um, you're, if you've been with FCC for a while, you're used to our teaching style being more uh, expositional. What I mean by that is we open up one text and we go through that text through the entire morning more so. Well, this morning is going to be a little bit different uh, due to the nature. And last week I talked about we're going to understand like a systematical theological understanding of the church. We're going to jump around quite a bit, but every single time when we look into a text, we're going to exegete this passage. So if you have your notes, a journal, or when you text begin, you have your digital notes there. Um, the first, we're going to look at three different things here. The first thing I want us to understand and see here is that the unfinished flock has Jesus as shepherd. The unfinished flock has Jesus as shepherd. Last week when we looked at the, the unfinished building, there was the analogy given to us, or we see in scripture, that Jesus is the cornerstone or the keystone. He is the building, uh, he's the beginning, and he is the, the completion, the end of things. So this analogy is very transferable. It just, instead of it being cornerstone and keystone, it's now Jesus is the shepherd of this flock. It's the imagery that we're going to see in this text here. Now, you've probably heard this, that Jesus is the good shepherd, right? And that's the one that we kind of adhere to. We kind of see this one. Well, actually, when we look through scripture, there's three different titles of Jesus being a shepherd that's given. And so that's, I want to look at this. So the first one, and if you have your copy of the scriptures, go ahead and flip or swipe to John chapter 10. So we're going to be at here for a little bit. Um, John chapter 10, we see Jesus is the good shepherd. And Jesus is the good shepherd who died for his sheep. So in John chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 for us this morning. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. When he has brought all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used to them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, he makes it real simple and clear here, truly, truly, I say to you, 
I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to still kill and destroy, and I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now here's where we see the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now I want you to understand something. When we look at the chronology of Jesus' teaching at this time, this is a foretelling of his death. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I am going to lay my life down for my sheep. But nowhere else before this has Jesus ever talked about his death, burial, and resurrection. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that this is coming, but this is the first time that his disciples hear with their ears from his voice that he has to lay down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So he dies for us. Now, I want you to pause and I want you to think for a second. When we look at this analogy of sheep and a shepherd, a sheep to a shepherd is a very, very valuable asset to them. My family has been in the cattle industry for a while. A lot of my family has been in the cattle industry or in the farming industry as a whole. And therefore, I know the implications when you lose a livestock, what you lose in that. It is detrimental. There's actually livestock insurance. So that if something happens to one of your pieces of livestock, you get paid for the loss of, of that sheep, that cow, whatever it would be. But in this, what Jesus says, no, that sheep is so valuable to me that before it dies, I'm going to die in its place. So I want you to think. I want you to think. If you think and believe that your life is useless, or you have no meaning, or there's no worth in your life, know this. Jesus died for you. He sees your life so valuable that he laid down his life for you. In today's time, we can, we can replace a sheep. Although it is very costly, we can replace the sheep. Even in Jesus' time, although that sheep would have been very costly to a shepherd to replace what Jesus is saying is it's so costly to him, what he values the life of that sheep is, is that he is going to take its place and die in its place. So Jesus is the good shepherd who dies for a sheep. There's this second text, and if you have your copy of the scriptures, you can flip to Hebrews 13, but it's going to be on the screen for you if not, is that Jesus is the great shepherd who lives for the sheep. Now, there's two different Greek words that's used here between good and great. So they're getting across another, the authors are getting across another uh, idea or another angle of who Jesus is. So not only does Jesus die for his sheep, but he also lives for his sheep. In Hebrews 13, 20 through 21, it says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It says here, it says that they brought again from the dead. Jesus conquered death. I was just saying about that. Jesus conquered death, and now he's alive, and he's giving us life. He's bringing life to us. So in this, anytime that I teach, I'd love to drop little, little techniques or trainings or practices of how we read Scripture. So when you're reading Scripture, a hermeneutical practice, one of the best practices in there is when we read Scripture, we're to compare Scripture with Scripture. So we interpret what the meaning of a text is 
through the lens of other texts within the scripture. So that if we're reading something and we believe that it's saying something, and that something is contrary to somewhere else that we find that, uh, a meaning in scripture, then that's not the meaning of that scripture. That's not what Christ has done. That's what the Holy Spirit has inspired that text to mean. But when we find that there's meaning here that's said again somewhere else, it's affirming that what is being said is true and is real. So when we read this text here that, that Christ has come, he's been brought again from the dead, that he's giving us life, when we read this in the, in, through the lens of John chapter 10, 10 that we just read, when it says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give them life and have it abundantly. Christ has come to give us life and life abundantly, or your translation may say everlasting. Life. That's what Christ has for us. Life. He wants us to experience life. The central focus and mission of the creator of the universe, what he was here for and what he exists for, isn't building some massive building. Isn't building some massive kingdom in the mindset of the ego that comes from it or saying that I'm the prince or the king of this nation. No, what Christ came for is for you and for me. It's us, his sheep. That's what he came here for. And that's what he's coming. That's what the, the great shepherd has come to give us his sheep life. The third, the third analogy that's given throughout the scriptures of Jesus being the shepherd is that Jesus is the chief shepherd. And this chief shepherd has come for his sheep. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, flip to 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be in here through, through the next point as well. So you can go ahead and flip there or swipe there. In 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 4, it says this, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So not only does Christ die, and then he comes to give us life, but he's coming back for us. Your life matters. You matter so much to Christ that he died for you, but not only does he die for you, he comes to give you life, and not only does he come to give you life, but he's coming back for you. I want you to think it through it in the, in the lens of this. Any hero movie you've ever watched, any Marvel, DC, whatever it be, any hero movie, the hero comes in and he saves the day, and then what is he on to? Or she on to? On to another mission, right? Going to go save someone else. But in the, the story of the scripture, Christ has come for us, and he's come to save us, Then he gives us life, and he doesn't go into some other mission no, he's coming back for us because we are his central focus. We are his mission. That's how much you matter, and that's how much you mean to the creator of the universe. His mission was completed on Calvary's cross. He died for us. He was the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. He could have said, done my part. I'm going to go back up to heaven now. I'm going to sit at the right hand of my father, and I'm going to reign there, and I'm going to relax. No, 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 no. He's interceding on our behalf right now to the Father. And in one day, he's coming down and returning to earth for us. Beautiful thought. The hero died for us and the hero is coming back for us. But right now, he's preparing a place for a sheep. He's preparing a place. So the first thing we look at is that the unfinished flock has Jesus as shepherd. The second thing when we look here in 1 Peter chapter 5 is I want us to see this, that the unfinished flock has elders as shepherds. So not only do we have Jesus as shepherd, but we have elders as shepherds. 
So all the following, when we look at this, because when we, when we looked at the first three parts of Jesus as the shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd, they don't really explain how Jesus shepherds us, right? It doesn't. It just gives us these, these analogies and such. When we dive into here, I believe that when we see through here in 1 Peter chapter 5, that these are microcosms or characteristics of how ultimately how Christ shepherds us and how he, how he uses elders to shepherd us in the midst of this. So as you're, as you're in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 is what we're going to look at, and we have to understand why the message of 1 Peter exists. So Peter wrote 1 Peter, and it says in the beginning in chapter 1, that he's writing it to the churches of the dispersion, meaning that there was oppression and persecution in Jerusalem and surrounding areas by both Jews and the Romans that people fled, and they went to all these places. So in the midst of this dispersion, in the midst of this persecution and oppression, Peter's writing to all these churches. So he doesn't write to a specific church like Ephesians or Galatians where it's to a specific city and then that letter is transcribed and written and then passed along those. No, he writes this to a wide range of people, to a big group of people. And in this, he's bringing encouragement and guidance to these churches of how to live through oppression and suppression and persecution in the midst of their life. So as we look in the text in 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm actually going to start in chapter 14 with the last verse in 19. And it says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not dim, domineering over those in your, in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." So in this, we're going to look at three attributes or characteristics of what a shepherd elder does. So in this, what a elder in the context of this passage, the word that Paul used or that Peter uses here for, for an elder, and its original meaning is simply an older man or an older woman that is guiding someone younger, which makes sense when we look in verses four and five of, of, of training up the younger respect to the older. That's the word. Now, the same word is used throughout all of Scripture. And remember, we interpret Scripture through other Scripture and understand the context of this. So when this same word is used in other passages in Paul's writings and even Peter's writings himself, the word for elder is oftentimes given to someone in a place of leadership within the church in a specific position of the specific placement of elder. Now, I'll give you all that. Most of y'all probably don't care a lick about all that, but I'm giving you all that for this sake so that we can understand who Peter is writing this to. Who is to receive this instruction? Who is to understand this? Who can take this instruction and then walk and live it out? So in this, who are the elders of FCC? When we look at this, I believe through the lens of the scripture that at FCC, it is our pastors. Our pastoral team are elders. It's also the elders upon who we vote upon to be placed on the elder board of FCC, which we have in a couple weeks on November 17th. We have a business meeting where we'll be voting upon the placement of two new elders, Dick Burbage and Scott Sarver, to become elders a part of this church. Then I believe also we have life group leaders. In this, life group leaders are placed structurally in the leadership of the church to guide and to shepherd 
the flock here at FCC, as well as anyone else that's placed in a, in a position of servanthood and a place of leadership where they're guiding spiritually people's lives, such as our kids' life and our student ministry. So now we understand who Peter's writing this to. Let's look at what he's telling them to do. The first thing that he's telling elders to do is elders are to feed the flock. Elders must feed the flock. In in verse 2 of this, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now in this, the word for shepherding the flock, there's two characteristics or there's two meanings that Peter's getting across here. And this first is to feed the flock. Now I want want you to kind of understand who Peter is. Some of you already know this, but I want to make some connection of dots for you. So Peter was a disciple of Christ, right? Peter, when when he's called by Christ, he's out on a boat and he's fishing. And and Jesus calls him, says, Peter, come and follow me. So Peter then spends the next three years following Jesus and sitting underneath his teachings. And then Jesus, right before he dies, he tells Peter what? Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Oh, no, Jesus. No, I'm not. I would never deny you. I would never do that. No, Peter, I'm Jesus. I'm Messiah. Yes, you will. Peter says, no, I'm not. That's not me. For the rooster crows, Peter denied Jesus three times. One of which he's looking at Jesus as is Jesus is being flogged and mocked by the Romans, which is why he writes a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He watched Jesus being whooped and beat and he denies knowing the person of Jesus. And then Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, he comes back to Peter. And where did Peter go back to? He went back to fishing. And he finds Peter fishing in a boat. And we see this passage where Jesus says to them, he says, well, cast your net on the other side of the the boat. And they said, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. (laughs) Who's this man to tell us how to fish? What do they do? They throw the net on the other side of the boat. And it says that they caught so much that they couldn't bring it. And immediately Peter knew that that was Jesus. And he jumps out of the boat and he flies swimming to Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, they have this conversation here, and we see this in John chapter 21. You don't have to turn that. It'll be on the screens for you. And this is the conversation between Jesus and Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. So he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. So he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I think the reason why Jesus asked Peter three times to feed his sheep was once for every single time that Jesus denied, or Peter denied Jesus. And in this, he was reconciling the relationship back to Peter. Peter, you failed me, but I'm never going to fail you. So when we look at the lens here of 1 Peter chapter 5, when he says, shepherd the flock, we have to read this through the lens of John chapter 21. Feed my sheep. So what does that mean? What does feeding the flock mean? It can mean a multitude of things, and many would make the argument and then come to the conclusion that to feed the sheep is to teach the sheep, is to teach them. We, we see multiple times that, 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 that the disciples would teach these individuals. The, one of the main passages is Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where we see these, these seven things of which the church does. And one of them being, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
Even when we look back at the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the commands that I have given to you. So this feeding the sheep is to teach the sheep. So if we actually look at this analogy of the shepherd and his flock, a legit and actual shepherd, when he had his flock, he would take his flock from pasture to pasture. They were nomads. And he would take them in a green space, and they would make sure that there was food there for them or grass for the sheep to eat. And as he would lead the flock into this new pasture, the shepherd could not make the flock eat, right? You've heard the analogy, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So in this, what Peter is saying here is that the role of an elder is to feed the flock. It's not to do everything for them. It's to develop and cultivate in them an understanding of how to read and how to crave God's teaching and how to understand his teaching so that they can apply it in their personal life to lead them to this green pasture. Warren Wearsby puts it this way. He says, how important is it for pastors to lead their people into the green pastures of the word of God so that they might feed themselves and grow. I've heard many of people say this. I just wasn't being fed on Sunday mornings. If all you're ever doing is looking to come to church on a Sunday morning to be fed, you're going to go hungry and you're going to starve. That's why we believe here at FCC in Jesus every day. And we want to abide in Christ every day. We want to get in the word so that the word gets into us so the word comes out of us. I want to, want to give you a little uh, insight. Is starting in next year, we have some pretty, pretty awesome resources that Pastor Kevin is going to be launching for us to help us in this area to abide in Christ every single day. I don't want to steal his thunder and tell you all the, the logistics of it, but, but some exciting things are, are coming up here, here soon for us. So the first thing that elders do is elders feed the flock. The second thing when we look at this aspect of shepherding is that elders protect the flock. So a shepherd, as they're leading their flock into these green pastures to eat, they would do two things to protect the flock. The first was this. They would go before they would lead their flock into the green pasture. They would walk to the pasture, and they would make sure that there was nothing there that was external that could bring harm to the sheep, such as animals. Are there snakes? Is there a pit of snakes? Is there a bear or a wolf or, or, or anything animal-wise that could bring harm to their sheep. And if so, the shepherd would either kill that animal or they would run them out. That's where we see where King David, it says that when he was still a shepherd, that he defeated a bear and a lion because he killed them so he could lead his sheep into this green pasture. The second thing they would look for is land features. In this, they would go and they would make sure, hey, are there any pits or holes or caverns that a sheep could get into? Are there any poisonous plants that a sheep might eat and that would poison them and kill them? Are there any cliffs or any other land features that could bring harm to the sheep? Because if you've ever been around sheep, they're not too smart. And they will walk themselves into a pit or a hole or they'll walk off a cliff. They just won't pay attention. They'll do pretty stupid things. So the analogy that I think that Peter's getting across him says to shepherd the flock is to protect the flock from outside as well as protect the flock from internal things, making sure they don't harm one another. So here, pastor, elders, life group leaders, those that are over us spiritually are to protect the flock from false teaching. Make sure that no gospel message is being preached that isn't true to the scriptures. Even if it's just a degree off, make sure that there's no false teaching. Make sure that when idols rise up in people's lives, make sure that you guide and direct them away from them so that their sole attention is on the person 
of Jesus Christ so that we may worship and obey him. I think we protect the flock and misplaced identity. When we begin to root ourselves in who we are and what we do and not who Christ has called us to be, it's a misplaced identity, protecting the, 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 the flock from this. Right now, just as a, a pastor here at FCC, and one of the areas in which I believe that the church has been infiltrated is, is in two ways. One, I believe, is this belief in political ideologies that are going to bring salvation. I truly believe, church, that so many of us think that based upon who we voted for this past Tuesday is going to save us. And that if we get the right people in our governmental positions, Jesus' kingdom is going to expand. Let me tell you right now, it doesn't matter who's in those positions. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus places, we read in Scripture, we read in Romans, where Jesus actually places people, even here in 1 Peter, he places people in a governmental authoritative positions, every single one of them, for his glory. Now in that, my, my, in, my, my, my finite mind cannot grasp and wrap around how God is going to redeem and reconcile such atrocities that happen in governments. I can't do that. But I can place my faith in Jesus in knowing that he is good and he will redeem. It doesn't matter whether a donkey or an elephant is in the, in the room. Who I worship is the lamb. And that's what this church is called to do. It doesn't matter who we vote for. It doesn't matter who is placed in authority. We do not believe that a political ideology is ever going to save us. Only the gospel can do that, church. Only the gospel can do that. The second thing I see that I think the church has done is, and you've heard this many times from me, is, is this cultural Christianity. Or even tie along with political ideologies where I believe that if I'm just conservative and I haven't done enough really bad things in life, then I am saved. Then, then, then I'm good enough. I think it comes down to an understanding of the doctrine of sin and our belief in what sin actually is. Because when we understand what sin is and the separation of, no matter whether we've killed someone or stolen a cookie, that separates us from God. Therefore, we're in need of a Savior to come and take our place and rectify us and ratify us back to our Father. I've heard it, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I haven't done that. That's not on my hands. Therefore, I'm a pretty good person. And when we believe that, that sin, one simple sin, is not that bad, then we believe that we can overcome that by doing more good. And what happens here in the Bible Belt of America is that just because I've gone to church, because I vote a certain way, typically in the Republican manner, then therefore I'm fine. No. No, only by the blood of Christ and an acceptance of who he is and a rejection of these political ideologies and a rejection of any other gospel that's, that's false, that's not rooted in Scripture, the person of who Jesus is can save us. As your shepherd, I am called to lead you to the person of Jesus, not to any other man or woman. A shepherd shepherds his sheep. When we look at this, so much protection of the sheep was personal. When a shepherd would see a sheep that was hurt or damaged or in pain, they would pick them up and they would carry them. They would have to be personal with them. You can't shepherd a flock from afar. You can't shepherd a flock from an arm's distance. You can't take care of your, sh your sheep from, from a long ways away. Protection of the flock is personal. And in this, when we even look at John chapter 10, a sheep know, the sheep know his voice, and he knows his sheep. So we shepherd the flock among us, 1 Peter 5.2. Then the third thing is that elders lead the flock. This is in the second half of verse 2. It says, in, in chapter, in verse 2, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God 
would have you. This part here is, is very interesting because not only are elders called to lead the flock and exercising the oversight of the flock, but guess what? They're a part of the flock. They're a part of the flock because they're not the good shepherd. They're not the great shepherd. They're not the chief shepherd. Now, I think something terrible happens when this shepherd or this elder gets placed above the flock and that's all they ever do. I think one of two things happen. One is sometimes I think that the sheep can make their elder shepherd the good shepherd. And I think that they can place them on a pedestal that only Jesus is measured up to go to. And what I mean by this is sometimes people place a pastor or a life group leader or someone who's made a massive impact in their life on this pedestal that when they fail, their faith crumbles. Instead of being attached to the person of Jesus, they're attached to a person of a follower of Jesus. Now, Paul does say, follow me or imitate me as I follow or imitate Christ. So we are to look up and to aspire to be like those that are spiritual leaders in our lives. But they are not Jesus. Church, I will fail you. I am a sinner. You will catch me in sin, and you need to bring that sin before me and say, Pastor, you have fallen. Let's redeem you. That's what we're called to do. And sometimes I think many of us wrestle with church hurt and church pains. And I'm not trying to, not trying to make this very generalized and very stereotypical, but because we do make a shepherd elder the good shepherd in our life instead of being tied to the person of Jesus. Or I think this happens. The elder shepherd's ego wells up in them that they think they are the good shepherd and that they save their flock and that they do everything for their flock. And they are the only one that can provide for their flock. And they are the only one that can feed their flock. And they are the only one that can lead their flock. And they are the only one. And all this builds up to this person believes that they have replaced Jesus in their church's life. And when this pastor elder falls, everyone else falls with them. And that's not good. That's not how Christ has designed his church. So in this, elders are over the flock and among the flock. Wearsby puts it this way. It says, you cannot drive sheep. You must go before them and lead them. It has been well said that the church needs leaders who serve and servants who lead. I'll go back to my football playing days um, when we would, we would have, and when I was in college, when I transitioned to center, uh, 30 minutes before practice began, when practice began by the hour logs of the NCAA, um, the centers and quarterbacks had to be out on the field for what's called CQ exchange. And all this is, is we would spend 30 minutes as a unit, centers and quarterbacks, exchanging the football, snapping both under center and pistol and in shotgun formation. And the whole purpose of this was so that we build that bond as the center and quarterback so that our snaps are flawless. The rest of the play cannot continue if the snap is not transitioned off properly. So we would show up 30 minutes before, and our coach would always say this, you set the tone in your practice right here, right now. If you're lazy and lackadaisical in these 30 minutes, the rest of your practice is going to follow. Or going into a football game, the first play sets the tone of the football game. The first offensive down sets the tone for the rest. The first play of the defense sets the tone for the rest of the game. We set the tone for the game in how we begin. We want to set the tone. That's what Peter's calling us to right here in elders. In verse 3, he says, be examples to the flock. Elders set the tone for the flock. Where they go, the sheep will go. Where they go, the sheep will go. So many of you may be saying, well, Ethan, I'm not an elder. I'm not a pastor of this church. I'm not an elder. I'm not a life group leader. Many of you are, absolutely, but that doesn't include me. Yes, it does. And here's why I believe that it does. 
I believe that we set the tone in our homes. We see biblically, if you're married, husbands, you set the tone in your house. You do. You lead your home. If you're not setting the tone, if you're not pursuing and you're not following after Jesus, the rest of your family might struggle. You set the tone. If you're a single parent in here, you set the tone for your child. Your love and pursuit for Jesus sets the tone for your children. Now, that kid in verse, I've seen many kids have a love and a passion for Jesus that that impacts and, and, and makes a difference on that parent's life because that child sets the tone for their parents. But we set the tone in our homes. We set the tone in our jobs by how we, how we work hard, our ethics, our morals, how we lead, how we love, how we shepherd, how we work in our workplaces sets the tone so that everyone else may follow. Are you students that are in school? You set the tone for your school. You set the tone. How you love Jesus your friends are going to follow. If you're always looking to follow your friends and pursuing in different ways, being tossed to and fro, as Scripture would say, you're not setting the tone. No, you set the tone, and you are examples to the flock. Because ultimately, elders are to lead. We are to lead and set the tone and push people to Jesus. That's what we do. That's who we are. So the unfinished church has elders who shepherd us. The last and final point we see here is that the unfinished flock has one another. Now, this point, I believe, can be so obvious that we miss it. It's kind of like I miss the forest for the trees. I believe it's so pertinent, so obvious here. Even when we look into to verse 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all you, with humility toward one another. In this, there's, there's this, uh, the sheep are amongst themselves, right? And throughout the New Testament, there's over 52 times that we've been we've given these statements or commands to do something for one another such as love one another. Over 16 times we see in the New Testament that we're told and commanded to love one another. Here in this text, it says that you are to be with humility toward one another. It also says we're to honor one another above yourself. We're to build one another up. We're to serve one another. We're to be kind and compassionate towards one another. There's all these one another's that are giving to us in the scripture. And even when we look at Christ's teaching, his great commandment tells this, you shall what? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're commanded and taught to do, right? I don't believe that it's easy or natural for us to love one another. I don't believe it's easy or natural for us to serve one another. I don't believe that it's easy or natural for us to honor one another above ourselves. I believe that that comes through a supernatural power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us as sheep to the shepherd of who Jesus is. So I want us to read and I want us to understand this. You shall love your neighbor through the lens of this quote by Duran Gray. He says this, Jesus made it clear. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. How is that bearing weight in your life? One of the ways you know you're growing in love for the other is that things that affect the other begin to affect you. I want to read that last sentence again. One of the ways you know you're growing in love for the other is that things that affect the other begin to affect you. It's kind of like this. When someone loses one, a family member, you go and you grieve with that person. It might not affect you. You might not even have known the person. Do you grieve with that person? Or last night when I got a phone call from a brother who was in pain and in dire straits, I went and met with him and sat with him and heard his heart and heard the brokenness in him. 
Why? It was, I'd rather have been with Katie and Genevieve, absolutely. But my brother was in need. And what was affecting him doesn't directly affect me, but I go and I bear that burden with him. We have only sheep. You see, I believe that a selfish sheep is a lonely sheep. When we're selfish and all we're worried about is us and who we are, we become very lonely in life. And if you're here today and you're lonely, it might be because of the selfishness in your life. I'm not saying that that's for everyone. I'm not saying that's maybe an aspect of it. When we look at the flock that Christ has given us, the church, we have one another. We bear burdens with one another. Maybe the reason why you're lonely is because you haven't reached out to your brother or sister and said, I need you. I need you. I want you. I desire you. Church, I want you to repeat this phrase after me. Say, we are the unfinished flock. Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for this text. Thank you for the truths we see here. Lord, I pray and ask that your Holy Spirit work and move in us. Lord, there's so much things we see in the, the scriptures of who you are and truths about who you are and how we follow one another and how we ultimately are following you, Jesus. So Lord, I pray right now that, that as we just go into this, this time of worship, um, Lord, that we would allow who you are and the truths that we find this, in this song to bring praise and adoration to you. And even reflecting and thinking about you, Jesus, as our shepherd, that our faith and hope would not be placed in man, but would be placed in you, Jesus. And Lord, any, any sin that's in us, even in, in, in the midst of, hey, I've, I have misplaced my salvation in the sense of I was looking for so-and-so to, to heal me or complete me, and it wasn't in you, Jesus. I pray, pray that we repent of that. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would move and work in our lives, and we would become more like you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.